But God still uses broken people, and aren't you grateful for that? Because even though we're broken people, there's a second plot twist to this whole thing. And that is, even though we have a great enemy, he is a limited enemy, and as broken people, we serve a much greater God and a living Christ. So let's look here in verse 5. Verse 5, I wrote this in the margins of my Bible, but verse 5 is like the most reduced version of the gospel. You could take all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and reduce it into Matthew chapter 12, verse 5. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. We get that from the Psalms. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. There you go. There's the gospel. All in a nutshell, the whole story bookended with the baby was born, he was caught up to the throne to rule at the right hand of God. And I read earlier about the woman fleeing into the wilderness, and then something else is going on. Verse 7 and 8. And there was a war. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. And you might be saying, well, didn't they just get cast out of heaven? It's kind of like where the scene changes, right? They told us a little earlier, well, Satan gets cast out of heaven, and then they give us a little bit more of the story, the Christmas story, right? We just read, and now it's like, all right, back to how did this war, what did it look like? A little more detail. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought against his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, called the devil. And Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth. And his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren, that's another name for the devil, the old serpent, is cast down. And he accused them before our God day and night. Think about that. That was Satan's great tactic, to accuse the brethren day and night. I cannot help but go to Hebrews chapter 11 in my mind. As I read that text, I think of Hebrews chapter 11, and I can just see Satan railing accusations against the saints that we find in Hebrews chapter 11. Well, don't you know about David? He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. Don't you know about Noah? He's a drunk. Go down the line. Bible character after Bible character, flaw after flaw after flaw. Satan is accusing us. It doesn't stop there. Verse 11. How do they overcome? And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. We just heard that song, sung earlier. And the word of their testimony and they love not their lives unto death. See, if I could go back to Hebrews chapter 11 for a moment. You think about Abel. What did he offer? A sacrifice. Enoch offers his testimony. Noah offers his righteousness and faith. Abraham offers his obedience. Sarah offers her trust in God. Isaac and Jacob offered their blessing. Joseph offers his consecration. Moses offered his solidarity. Rahab offered her courage. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets offered leadership and influence. And then you read about those whom the world is not worthy. The martyrs offered their very lives. But it was never any of those things that saved a single one of them, was it? What was it? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says they were all looking at the same point of reference. What was that point of reference? They were looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of of their faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. You see, those saints that I just read in Hebrews chapter 11 have the same tools available to them that you and I have available to us today. And you might be asking yourself, well, who are these people that are in this, engaged in this battle in Revelation chapter 12, 7, 8, and 9? It talks about this battle that's happening in heaven. You know the word of God says to us, even right now, that we are seated with Christ where? In heavenly places. You know, you and I haven't quite realized the fullness of our salvation yet because we're right here. But in the mind of God, it's as if we are up there in heaven with him. We just haven't experienced the fullness of that promise just yet. But we are engaged in this battle together. And we have the same weapons available to us that all the saints of all the ages have had available to them. And these are life-giving weapons. Here are the two weapons that we are given in verse 11. And they overcame him by what? The blood of the Lamb. And they overcame him by the word of their testimony. Remember what we said earlier? Satan's singular goal is what? His singular goal is to destroy and to devour life. We have two life-giving weapons available to us. And the blood of the Lamb, nothing offers life like the blood of the Lamb. I hope that this evening you have experienced the fullness of the power of the blood of the Lamb, the once-for-all sacrifice who is Jesus Christ. You see, if Satan was successful in devouring the man-child, you and I would have no hope. But because he was unsuccessful, because Jesus Christ is the victor. You see what's fascinating about this whole war that's taking place? Before you get to verse 7 and 8 about this fight between Michael and the archangels, Verse 5 already told us, and her child was caught up unto heaven and to his what? Throne. It's done. He's won. The war was almost pointless because Jesus Christ has already won the battle. Satan still thinks he can win, but we already have a fixed point of reference that Jesus Christ is already victorious. The second tool that we're given is the word of our testimony. What is the word of our testimony? The word of our testimony is simply our speaking of Jesus Christ. Wherever we are in every area of life, regardless of where we find ourselves, whether at the grocery store, whether in your workplace, whether in your living room, whether here in this place, Satan is always going to try to keep out of our lips the word and the testimony of Christ. But that is one of the greatest tools that we have. And he will try to convince us, well, who do you think you are? Because why? He's an accuser of the what? Brethren. He's going to accuse you and say, what authority do you think you have? What influence do you think you have? Don't you know who you are? Oh, I know who I am. I am a blood-washed child of the Son of God. And it is by his authority and power that I come and I proclaim the testimony of Jesus Christ. Simply to his cross I cling. Nothing in my hands I bring. Those are our weapons. Those are our tools. That Christ has given the life-giving weapon that offers salvation to all people. So don't let Satan and his pitiful tactics try to keep you mute from speaking the name of Christ. There's one thing as I wrap up here that I failed to give. And that is that every story must have an audience, shouldn't it? 
Every story needs to have an audience, and this audience is fascinating. You see, when we read Revelation chapter 12, sometimes we read it from the lens of a newspaper. Well, where in the newspaper can I see where Revelation is unfolding? But we must never lose sight of the fact that Revelation was written to people in the first century who understood exactly what they were reading. And as you get to the beginning of the letter, the revelation of Jesus Christ was written to the seven churches in Asia Minor who are experiencing intense persecution. Persecution so intense that the entire Roman army was at their doorstep trying to extinguish their very existence. You and I can't even fathom what that's like. We can't walk into the portals of North Korea and see the prison camps full of people who claim the name of Christ. We can't walk into India and see Christian women drugged to their death because they claim Christ. We can't walk to the streets of Baghdad as people who proclaim Christ are shot dead by evil people who do not want salvation preached. But that's who the audience of the scripture is. A persecuted church that needed to be reminded that Jesus Christ is victorious. Our weapons are never political. Our weapons will never be legislative. Our weapons are the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And nothing can extinguish that. And this church that's reading these letters, you see, when they read about this dragon with seven heads and ten horns, you know what they're seeing there? They're seeing a Roman empire, a city on seven hills, the Emperor Nero and Diocletian, who are sending the full force of the Roman army to destroy them. Now, if anything is going to keep you from proclaiming the name of Jesus, that might just be it. There are historical records that remind us of Christians being put in tar and impaled on posts to light up the gardens of Rome. And Nero would tell his musicians to play louder so that he wouldn't have to hear the screams. This is who the letter is written to. But he doesn't just say to remain. He doesn't just say to endure. Can I read verse 12? The word of God says, therefore, what? Rejoice. I refuse to live a Christian life of enduring. I refuse to live a Christian life that's just going to make it till the end. I don't want to just remain. Because God has given us so much more than that. Even amidst the persecution, the destruction that the people who are reading this letter are in. John says, don't lose sight. God is victorious. He's already won. You are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You have the power of your testimony. And the historical record will tell us 300 years later, the entire Roman Empire would claim Christianity as their official religion. Not by political might, not by armies, not by legislation. By what? The word of their testimony. Let's stop living a Christian life hiding, cowering in caves, hiding in our homes shielding ourselves from any kind of persecution. Let us walk out in faith, boldly taking back the dark places that the devourer has consumed, realizing that Jesus Christ is already the victor in that area. We just have to step forward in faith and believe him. And we'll see God do incredible and amazing things.
You might say, Pastor Joshua, I wasn't really a great student when we did book reports. Just give me the Cliff Notes version of this thing. Here's the Cliff Note version. An apocalyptic Christmas story doesn't call us to simply remain and endure. It calls us to what? Rejoice. I mentioned this last week. But earlier, a few weeks ago, the first pastor that I ever knew in his 70s was diagnosed with cancer. And he passed away, but he always used to sing this song. And the song went something like this. I don't know if you've ever heard it. I don't know if I've ever heard anybody sing it before. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe a pastor's heard it, but it goes something like this. He said, some may give me silver, some may give me gold, but I say give me Jesus He's precious to my soul. Oh, I'm going to die on that battlefield. I'm going to die in that war. Oh, I'm going to die in that battlefield with glory in my soul. That's the way that I want to go. Not cowering in fear, but fighting the good fight of faith. Not afraid, but rejoicing. So here's what I'll leave you with this. Don't be content hiding out until Jesus comes. You and I must pick up our weapons of warfare, speak life, give the gospel, reclaim the spiritual territory that the devil has stolen. And let us step out in faith and stop cowering in despair. Jesus Christ is alive, the victory has been won, and you and I are on the winning side. There is a great enemy but we serve a greater God and a living Christ. Therefore, rejoice.